one thing which has changed the way we are treating our patients that we are testing all our patients for molecular classification so we can treat them accordingly so please go back to your clinics and remember your patients deserve to be tested for molecular classification for so many years we had nothing more to add to these patients than carboplatin paclitaxel or single agent chemotherapy or single agent hormonal therapy and what we are removing in such a short time this is amazing sure we are lucky you we are lucky our patients are lucky but we are lucky to be part of the change This podcast is an initiative of Core2Ed and developed by Obstetrics and Gynecology Connect, a group of international experts working in the field of obstetrics and gynecology. The podcast is supported by an independent educational brand from ASI Europe Limited. The views expressed are the personal opinions of the experts. They do not necessarily represent the views of the experts' organizations or the rest of the Obstetrics and Gynecology Connect group. For experts' disclosures on any conflict of interest, please visit the Core2Ed website. Hello, and welcome to this podcast on the systemic therapies in endometrial cancer. I'm Keta Russo. I'm a GYM oncologist at Fondazione Policlinico Gemellium Rome. I'm very happy and honored to join this podcast with my good friend and fantastic professional speaker, Mansur Mirza. Hi, Keta. Hi, everybody. Uh, it's a great pleasure to be here. My name is Mansur Mirza, as Keta told, and I'm a clinical oncologist from Copenhagen. And it's a great pleasure to discuss this very important topic, um, systemic therapy in endometrial cancer, which is changing, especially in 2023. There will be some very important new data that will be coming you know, every few months. So we will see complete change of the landscape of treatment of these patients. Sure, sure. This is a very exciting moment to speak about endometrial cancer. In the next few minutes, uh, we will discuss what is the standard and also the new data that are coming in. But Mansoor, before starting speaking about new drug, endometrial cancer patients are very complicated patients because of several comorbidities, obesity, older age, you consider all this aspect when you decide a treatment for your patient? Yeah, they, they are they are obese. The median age is about 68 years. So it's quite up. And then once they are obese, they also have many of these hypertension, diabetes, um, um, coronary heart diseases, and all those things. So, so that is a very important lesson for us. Fortunately, the systemic treatment we uh, gave, in most of the cases, uh, we can manage the comorbidities and give uh, systemic treatment to these patients. So we do we do consider it. We have to take control of comorbidities, but we can provide state-of-the-art to these patients, even though they are quite comorbid, many of those patients. Sure, medical conditions are important to consider, particularly in this population, but actually we have also several interesting data about the molecular characteristic of this tumor. I think that has changed everything. Uh, In less than a decade, when we saw the data from the Cancer Genome Atlas, and that has completely changed the way we think about treating our patients or doing the clinical research 
to find new ways. Earlier, we had two types of tumors, the endometroid and non-endometroid, and that's about it. And now we can see that that's not the case. And this is a very heterogeneous disease. So Keta, do you want to walk us through the four major groups? Although we, we know that there's much more uh, than that. Oh, yes, for sure. Basically, as you say, uh, for seven years, we consider endometrial cancer two disease, but actually we know that they are at least four different tumors. And in particular, we know that around 8 to 10% of endometrial cancer present a mutation in a gene, which is the poly gene. And these are the tumors with the best prognosis. Probably in the future, we will not treat at all this patient. We will perform surgery, but we will not treat with any kind of treatment in the adjuvant setting. On the opposite, we have the P53 mute tumor, which represents around 25% of endometrial cancer. These tumors are very, very, very aggressive and are the tumor which gain major benefit from chemotherapy. But these tumors are very interesting because they present homologous recombination deficiency. And probably in the future, we will have a space for PARP inhibitor in this particular setting of patients. Then we have a, a mixed population, as you say, the non-specific molecular profile. That is a really mixed population. They represent about 40% of endometrial cancer. I'm sure that in the future, we will have more granularity in better identify this tumor. What we know now is that these tumors are particularly enriched by hormone receptor positive tumor, and probably this tumor will need hormonal treatment in the future, but probably, and you know better than me, the combination of hormonal treatment and CDK46 inhibitors, as you've demonstrated in the paleo trial, may be an option for this patient. And lastly, the last category is about 30% of endometrial cancer present genomic instability called microsatellite instability. This tumor have a lot of tumor mutational burden, new antigens, tumor infiltrating lymphocyte, and this is the reason why this tumor seems very prone to respond to immunotherapy because of this genomic instability. This is a very good summary of what we have learned. If I can add to on top of that, the very important thing, if you look at just at, the, let's say, in endometroid grade three tumors, uh, that's a very heterogeneous disease. That's some small subset. It could have the estrogen receptor positive or negative. It, there could be uh, P53 mute patients in that. There could be patients who have MSI high, uh, a small subgroup in the same one. So you can see that it's a very, very heterogeneous uh, group, and it could be treated very differently. We will come back to how sensitive uh, the patients with MSI high are to the immune therapy to checkpoint inhibitors, but that's another topic. Before going to immune therapy, I just want to add to what Keta just said, that, that I think we have identified quite many druggable targets in endometrial cancer, and we are not going to plan uh, so-called dinosaur trials, everybody gets, gets drug A or drug B, but we are going to plan 
to pull the, the subgroups out, the molecular subgroup, and try to give the drugs which are targeted to these subgroups. An example is P10 mutation. Uh, an example is PIK3CA, the HER2 uh, or HER2 low, the data is coming. Geta is very nicely mentioned about HRD, HRD as at the PARP inhibitors. So I think we have so many KRAS mutation is another uh, subgroup. So so we are we are really, really moving towards seeing these patients with a great uh, opportunities. Take the P53 wild type and the data we saw last year with Ciento uh, trial in the subgroup of P53 wild type. That has brought us two phase three trials, right? The one with uh, Selinexor and one with uh, MDM2 inhibitor. So, so I think we would be doing these trials, smarter trials, to find the drugs for subgroup of patients and not doing the bigger trials for everyone. Sure, very, very, very personalized treatment according to the molecular characteristic of tumor. I think that endometrial cancer is among the gynecological malignancies, the tumor with the great step forward in terms of molecular profiling and matched treatment. But coming back to microsatellite instability, you know that the among solid tumor, endometrial cancer is the tumor with the higher rate of microsatellite instability. And uh, this makes this tumor particularly prone to respond to immunotherapy. And uh, you, you are involved in a lot of trial with immunotherapy in endometrial cancer. Can you give us some information about the approved drug for uh, endometrial cancer, MSI high tumor? So absolutely, we are in a very great era where we have uh, very important drugs available to our patients, which are very effective for our patients. Two of the drugs are approved, pembrolizumab and dostalimab on trials, Keynote 158, and Garnet study. Garnet was actually the, the biggest phase two non-randomized study. And then we saw the further development of uh, pembrolizumab in the MSS, but I believe that we will discuss it later in the study 775, but we will come back to that. So, so in the MSI high population, now we have in the patients who have metastatic relapse disease, two options available. They either treat them with single-agent pembrolizumab or dostalimab, and response rates are amazing, about 40%, 45% or even higher with the single agent. Remember, when I say 45% is amazing, if you look at the response rate of chemotherapy in second line, it's about 10% or even less, whichever chemotherapy or hormonal therapy you take. So this is a completely different ball game how we are treating our patients. And we will come back to the future. You will soon see the results uh, in MSI high in frontline in the stage three and four in, in the metastatic uh, and the relapsed disease where we used to give carboplatin, paclitaxel, how we are going to change that. I cannot see time to wait for your presentation at this Mansur. And uh, th this is a really a, a very uh, good moment for our patient. Immunotherapy single agent in MSI-high, two drugs approved, pembrolizumab and dostarlimab. But the problem is that when we try to use immunotherapy alone, 
in MSS patients, unfortunately, we did not get the same fantastic results as we expected, and the response rate was, was between 10 and 13%, so not so exciting as we expected. But uh, as you mentioned, we are trying to broaden the indication of immunotherapy in MSS patients. One option is to combine with chemo, and uh, you will present the data of the trial very soon in SGO. Another possibility is to combine with antiangiogenic agent. You know, there is a strong rationale in combining immunotherapy plus antiangiogenic agent, normalize the vasculature, facilitate the tumor infiltrating lymphocyte, spread the maturation of the dendritic cell, and this facilitate antigen presentation. And lastly, downstream the regulation of PDL1. So a lot of reasons why we expect that immunotherapy plus antiangiogenic agent work together. And this is what we demonstrate in the K-Node 775 trial. Can you say something about that, Mansoor? Oh, absolutely. I will start with the good part. That is the efficacy. First of all, statistics was amazing. This trial had multiple primary endpoints. First, you look at PFS in the MSS population, and if that was positive in the intention to treat population, and both were positive. The trial was designed for the patients who had already relapsed on carboplatin paclitaxel and had to receive single agent, typically what we give is weekly paclitaxel or doxorubicin. And the trial was designed to have head-to-head comparison to monochemotherapy with one of these two drugs against the combination of pembrolizumab and lymvatinib. And it showed clear clinical and statistical benefit, both in MSS and intention to treat population when it comes to PFS. It showed the same for the response rates, and it showed the same for OS, for overall survival in all populations. So all six primary endpoints were completely positive. I think Vicky uh, Marker led this trial amazing job. So that is the positive side of the study. I believe that we are going to now discuss the toxicity, the adverse events, which is the difficult part of this study, is the combination is not a piece of cake. It's not a free meal. There's quite a toxicity involved to that. And that had caused that quite many patients had to drop treatment, pause treatment or drop treatment, either one or second or both treatments. But Despite of that, you see a great uh, efficacy and survival benefit. Uh, sure, Mansoor. I, I think in my memory is the first time that we have a trial that increase overall survival in second-line yes. setting endometrial cancer, seven months more overall survival. is something that, honestly, we need to consider when we choose a treatment to our patient. Absolutely. And uh, I want to, to make you a very provocative question. We will come back on the discussion of toxicity, which is, as you say, a very important topic of this combo. But, you know, there was a pre-planned, not powered, unfortunately, analysis in this trial evaluating the benefit of the combo pembrolimbatinib also in MSF high population, microsatellite in stable patient. And they reporting an amazing increase in PFS and OS, but also 40% overall response rate. The clinicians are quite difficult now 
how we have to treat our MSI high patient, immunotherapy single agent or the combo based on this subgroup analysis in your opinion? So, Keta, this is a million-dollar question. There are two reasons I would choose single-agent pembrolizumab or dostalimab. One reason is that in 775, we did not compare uh, in the MSI high population the combination of lembatinib and pembrolizumab against pembrolizumab alone because we know pembrolizumab alone is very effective. So we don't know if the combination is superior. We are trying to do trans-trial comparison. That's one reason. And second, as you know, is that pembrolizumab or testalimab are extremely effective in this subgroup. And the third thing is the toxicity profile. Single-agent yeah. immune checkpoint inhibitors are much, much easier uh, for patients to tolerate than the combination of uh, pembrolizumab and levatinib. So for all these reasons, even though the approval is in all patients, I feel I will not start on combination any of my patients. I would give them single agent chemotherapy. I'm afraid the next question you are going to ask is if they start progressing, are you going to add lymphoma? We don't have a trial on that. Uh, so these are the next trials we have to do to find out. We don't have a trial that if patients had earlier pre received uh, immune therapy, which we will see now uh, in SGO, after SGO, if the standard of care in first line is changed, not if, but when uh, the, it will be changed, then how we are going to interpret the data of 775, because these patients will not be immune therapy naive. So we have, we have a lot of work to do to find out about these things. I fully agree with you. Uh, we will work in the future on the sequence uh, of treatment, considering that immunotherapy will move earlier and earlier in the treatment algorithm. But uh, we will have also during ASCO the results of another important trial, which is the LIP001 trial comparing carboplatin paclitaxel with pembrolimbatinib. And if the trial is in favor of pembrolimbatinib, we will have another difficult topic to address how to treat this patient with the chemo-naive combination or with immunotherapy in combination with chemo. As you mentioned, we have to do a lot of work in the coming years to answer all these questions, but this is another good reason to properly manage the toxicity yeah. of this new combination. Uh, because, yes, for sure, you properly said 66% of patients reduced the, the dose of treatment and 33% of them discontinued treatment because of toxicity. But it is a so difficult to manage this toxicity, in your opinion, Mansoor? You have to really learn how to treat the patients. People feel that they can start with a low dose. I think that we have enough data to say that we have to start with a full dose of lymvatinib, 20 milligrams that we cannot start with the low dose. But having said that, you have to really teach your patient, the relatives of the patient, your staff should be very much prepared. Your young doctors should be very much prepared. And patients should know that it's not that you have to call when you have grade three toxicity, any slight adverse event, he, they have to call and you have to be proactive. What we do is we actually in the first cycle, Every week they are coming to us. We are not calling them. We want to see them. After that, if everything is going fine, we call them every week. And this way we sort of 
make a very, very tight action with our patients. Fully agree what you say, Mansoor, and the importance to educate patients, the importance to educate the staff, the importance to follow in a very proper way the patient, particularly at the beginning. You know that hypertension, the first occurrence of hypertension is two weeks after starting treatment. And uh, the idea you have to follow every single week, the patient is a very good idea, at least at the beginning, uh, in order to to identify hypertension. Another topic is hypothyroidism. You know, there is a huge number of patients that can develop hypothyroidism, which is a typical side effect of Pembro, also than on uh, Lemba. And this patient would check for hormones, uh, thyroid hormones, every other cycle. So I think you probably said we have to perform a learning curve in the management of this new combo. But I think, and probably you will agree with me, the worst thing that we can do is not to offer the best treatment to our patient because we are unable to manage the toxicity. Oh, I completely agree. And what we do is we try to be very easy to reduce the dose very quickly. If patient, and we didn't mention the diarrhea, that may come even earlier than one week. So we have to reduce the dose or pass the dose and restart on the lower dose. Many of my patients come down to 14 milligrams uh, and even lower, but I try to continue the lembatinib uh, as long as possible to, to, to continue the treatment. I can give you example of two of my patients. Uh, that's amazing stories. One, one patient, she uh, after starting, she had so much you know, diarrhea and she had to be reduced to 12 milligrams. And after four weeks, she came to me. She said, Mansoor, I think my, to my disease is progressing and I'm feeling like, you know, so bad. I don't want to continue. I said, okay, we had to wait for a scan in eight weeks. I can get scanned now. And I did scan and she had almost complete remission. She had huge disease. She had almost complete remission. She just changed her mind. I'm fine. (laughs) And and in eight weeks, she had complete remission. And that's one year ago. Uh, And in June last year, I had to stop her treatment, both for Pembro and Limpa, because of the, the terminal elitis and, and a severe toxicity of limbatinib. So she's off treatment since June, and we are waiting. She's, I, I have agreed with her. It's a pause. In case something happens, we will restart. She's in complete remission. Wow. <laughs> Amazing. Sorry. And the second patient, she's a GP, uh, a retired GP, and she decides a lot of treatment herself. She doesn't listen to me. So she went down all the way to four milligrams of limba. And I was telling her, no, please don't do that. Please don't do that. And she had so much disease burden. And uh, on the last scan, when she, about two months ago, we saw that she was starting progressing. And then she went back to, now she's on 14 milligrams. And again, you see shrinkage of the tumors. So, so, you know, this is amazing combination, very difficult, but it is, you can manage, you can teach your staff, you can teach your patients and you can manage that. Remember when patients will see the efficacy, they will accept 
uh, to continue the treatment. Sure. And we should consider, really consider this patient to, to other patients with MSS. Sure, sure. I fully agree. And also considering that once you identify the proper dose, the data of T node 775 clearly reported there is no worsening in quality of life of this patient. T node was the only trial reporting quality of life data in endometrial cancer. Exactly. It was really, really reassuring, really reassuring. So Mansu, we are very close uh, to the end of this podcast, but before closing, uh, I um, want to give uh, a picture of what will happen in 2023 and 2024 in endometrial cancer patient treatment. Uh, a lot of uh, trial ongoing, uh, very exciting results in the adjuvanted metastatic setting. Can you give us an update uh, of what will happen? Oh, yes. We are privileged to be part of it. I would say uh, we are going to completely change the uh, management of, of our patients and improve their survival. So majorly, major, I would say I can divide this uh, tsunami of trials into three parts. <laughs> One is that we are trying to ask the question, if adding immune checkpoint inhibitors to the standard of care chemotherapy is going to do better than chemotherapy alone, so it's an add-on treatment. And then you will see the first trial results, which I will present in March, is the uh, NGOT EN6 RUBY trial. You will see most probably the, the DMMR part of the uh, GY018, the NRG trial in ASCO. And you will probably see uh, Dr. Uh, Nicoletta Colombo's attend trial results in uh, uh, later this year. So these these things are coming in. And the second question we can ask is, if we really need chemotherapy or we can replace carboplatin paclitaxel, uh, we can give it later upon relapse, if they relapse, and, and do uh, a non-chemotherapy regimen. And there, the first readout probably will be at ASCO is the LEAP1, as you mentioned, that's pembrolimba against carboplatin paclitaxel. And then I like the most, most nicest trials, two of them, uh, are the trials being done in the biomarker positive population that is MSI high. And there you are replacing with single agent immune checkpoint inhibitor against carboplatin paclitaxel. One is your trial, NCODN15, and the other is the Gineco Group's trial. Uh, a nice name of that trial. Yes, I have to say yes. <laughs> The Dominica the trial. Dominica trial. <laughs> and that is taking Dostalimab against carboplatin paclitaxel. So you can imagine, and, and I'm not saying if, when we see the results and they will be very positive, we are going to change the management of our patients. The third group, I would say, is even going further. So the patients first receive chemotherapy. And in the chemotherapy, they're randomized to immune therapy or placebo. And when they finish chemotherapy, you add PARP or placebo on top of that. There are two trials, the RUBY part two, the NCOTN6 part two, and the DUOE trial. And I think we will see the results of DUOE in fall this year. Many data we will manage for, in the for, coming years. For so many years, we had nothing more to add to these patients than carboplatin paclitaxel or single agent chemotherapy or single agent hormonal therapy. And what, where are we moving in 
such a short time. This is amazing. Yes, it is. It and is. It, it's and, a privilege uh, to be part of this. 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 Yeah. Process. Sure, we are lucky. You, we are lucky. Our patients are lucky, but we are lucky to be part of the change. And Mansur, your enthusiasm is very contagious, and it was an honor and a great pleasure to record this podcast with you. So thank you so much for being here with me this afternoon. Thank you. And I just want to uh, say that, please, one thing which has changed the way we are treating our patients, that we are testing all of our patients for molecular classification so we can treat them accordingly. So please go back to your uh, clinics and remember your patients deserve to be tested for molecular classification. Sure. This is a very, very important message. So thank you again. And before we close, I invite all of you to listen to the other episodes of this podcast series as well, which will be completely dedicated to the management of toxicity of systemic therapies in endometrial cancer. So the full series is available on courtuad.com and on your preferred podcast platform. Thank you so much again. Thank you. This podcast was brought to you by Court2Ed Independent Medical Education. Please visit court2ed.com for more information.